0: Prologue. 1st of April, 2014. In those first few seconds between the soft nothingness of sleep and the inevitability of waking, I have completely forgotten. Lying on my right side, I open my eyes and see David's fine profile as ever, his smooth olive skin, his silvery hair on the pillow. Then I remember... He died last night, just after eight o'clock. He's still here with me in our bed of more than four decades. I slide my left hand across the space between us and onto his belly. Still warm, just a little bit warm. It's late March and very cold at our farm in rural Yetom, but our bed's well covered with woolen blankets and down. I reach up and touch his icy cheek. It's true, then. It really did happen. I feel disoriented. It's only natural. These are the first moments of a very different life. I can't begin to imagine what that life looks like from here. I know that I must get up and start the day. There's so much to do, to organise, to settle. There are thirteen people staying at the farmhouse. Our four children some of their partners and most of their children. We need to call the doctor, the death certificate, the palliative care team to notify, the undertaker, the body, the Anglican minister, a plot in the local cemetery, close family members, David's brother and sister, and dozens of friends and neighbours. We have a funeral to plan. I kiss his forehead. It feels so strange. I need tea. Proper leaves in a teapot. Our bedroom opens onto a wide hallway heading down to the kitchen. David's huge portrait is on the wall opposite our doorway. He looks melancholy, eyes downcast. That's how the artist saw him. That's how he saw himself. There's a small child wearing pyjamas in the hallway, skipping and singing to himself. My grandson, Owen. Oblivious to my presence, Grandad's dead, grandad's dead, is Owen's repeated chant. He was here in our room last night. Everyone was crying. This surely must be his three-year-old way of processing that collective deluge of grief. Poor little chap. I hope he's not permanently traumatised. Yet his song has made me smile, almost laugh, reassuring me that life will somehow go on. He's hungry, so I make toast while the kettle boils. I throw some small logs into the wood stove, tickle the embers alive. One by one, family members emerge from the bedrooms that also open onto the wide hallway. There are children and teenagers sleeping on various sofas and blow-up beds. Nobody's feeling chatty. They all look at me, wondering how I am today. We all go through the motions of breakfast, trying to ease into this very strange new day. I'm fine, really, numb but functioning, cuddling kids, letting cats and dogs in and out of the back door, wondering if anyone remembered to shut the latch of the chicken shed last night. Probably not. I take my second cup of tea back to bed to where David still lies. He brought me tea in bed every morning we were together for perhaps the last 30 years. During our first decade together, I was usually up before him wrangling babies and small children, but after that phase he cheerfully took over, coming back to bed himself with his coffee and the newspaper. It occurs to me that this will be our last morning in bed together, ever. I drink my tea slowly, deliberately. I must never forget these last few hours. A decision is made to keep David here until later today, when our daughter Miriam's husband and her four sons will arrive from Adelaide. I want the boys to see their grandfather one last time at the farm in his own bed. They've spent all their summer holidays here with us for 15 years, running wild. It's their place of happy memories and cousin time. I don't need to make any of the difficult calls. Our adult children swing into action, organising everything. I'm allowed to float, to ask questions, to make suggestions, to add a name to the list. I can't believe we didn't discuss any of this until now – In spite of the last two years of certainty, knowing it would end this way, we have never discussed one single aspect of what will happen in the hours, the days, the weeks and the months that will follow the death. I never brought it up with David and he never brought it up with me. I'm so appreciative and overwhelmed by this love and support our children working together to make all this easier for me just as they have worked as a team these last four days to support their dying father. I am grateful. It'll take me four years to feel like myself again. The old me needs to stand aside and allow the remade version of myself to emerge. However, in those few days between the death of my husband and his funeral, I have no foreboding of the difficult path that lies ahead. Part 1. Losing David Chapter 1. The Beginning Sydney, 1971 I was twenty-one and full of ambitious enthusiasm when I first met David Hannay. It was 1971 and I had just graduated as a graded journalist following a three-year cadetship at the Australian Woman's Weekly. I had a boyfriend my own age, but he'd recently headed off to London and I was saving up to join him. In order to accumulate the money I needed for this journey, I left my reliable magazine job for a pay rise in the publicity department of the television station Channel 9. This day job also allowed me to have a night gig as a barmaid at my local, the Mossman Hotel. When I first started at Channel 9, my plan was to quickly escape the publicity role for that of a news reporter, even though at that time there were only two women television journalists in Sydney, both at the ABC. I wanted to take my news reporter training a little further into uncharted territory. I was not beautiful, but I had an open face and a ready smile. I had long red hair, which I wore hanging straight in the fashion of the day, belying the fact that my hair was naturally even curlier than Nicole Kidman's locks in the film BMX Bandits. It took hours of laborious winding of wet hair around my head to achieve this smooth style. I also wore thick makeup to cover my freckles and black false eyelashes – another must-have fashion of the sixties. Not long into my new job, an unusual-looking chap walked into the small publicity office. He was balding with long blonde streaked hair and a bright red beard that reached halfway down his front. I noticed his intense brown-black eyes as he politely introduced himself, telling me he was part of an independent production company making a weekly family show called The Godfathers. ''Where did you spring from?'' he asked. I laughed and told him about my journalism background and because I'd never seen the programme, he offered to take me onto the set in Studio 2 to watch an episode being taped. I was immediately fascinated by the process of television production. And him. That evening I reported to my mother that I'd met a man called David at work that day, saying he looked a little bit like a garden gnome. He wore a trademark outfit of pale blue denim jeans, matching jacket, tall leather boots and a silk scarf around his neck. All he needed was a pointed hat. For me, it was not love at first sight. I was still besotted with my absent high school boyfriend and excitedly told David I was planning to fly to London as soon as possible, so I'd probably only be working at the station for six months or so. I also mentioned I was keen to try TV news reporting and to my amazement he immediately organised an audition for me with the station's popular current affairs programme, A Current Affair, with Mike Willisey. It didn't dawn on me at that time that he was trying hard to impress me. Somehow I thought myself to be sophisticated but looking back I realised I was completely unworldly in the ways of men.' David would pop into my office every morning for a chat, interrupting my daily media deadlines and sitting on the edge of my desk drinking coffee. It was fortunate that my boss was an easy-going bloke. David was dismayed when my audition for the program came to nothing, although the soft news story I'd put together for them was actually played on the program the following week. "'Women aren't really welcome in the newsroom,' the news director explained, "'not bothering to let me down gently. "'We had a woman once, and she was nothing but trouble. "'In the end, she took off with one of our best reporters. "'Imagine using that language to an aspiring job applicant in this day and age. "'I was disappointed, but not really surprised.' David asked me out but I was so busy doing my barmaid gig six nights a week I had no time left for socialising. By Sunday, my night off, I was always worn out. A few weeks later he trailed around after me at the Channel 9 Christmas party where I had what we now know as a show business me too moment. I was invited by one of the corporate secretaries to go with her by taxi to a nearby motel for an after party Despite my naivety, I soon realised it was a small, exclusive party. In a hotel room filled with bottles of champagne, there were two female secretaries, three rather scary senior executives, and me, the new girl. It was a set-up. I had a nasty head cold and, snuffling and sneezing, managed to beg off, catching a taxi home at great cost to my junior wage. The following Monday morning, David appeared at my desk, asking where I'd vanished to. He said he'd been searching for me at the original party for hours until he gave up and went home. I told him the executive set-up saga, and he was incensed. Later I discovered that David loved nothing more than to be incensed, to be enraged, He was a bit of a drama queen. He'd been an actor in both film and television in Australia for several years in his early 20s, and before that, a child radio actor in New Zealand. In his late 20s, he switched to the production side of the business. I do sometimes wonder if I'd stayed at that party and cooperated in the fun with the executives. Would it have advanced my girl reporter television ambitions? Hmm. I doubt it, the two young secretaries were never promoted beyond their personal assistant status. The development of my relationship with David happened slowly and naturally. He was eleven years older and he took me under his wing. I enjoyed his company and his attention. Sometimes we ate lunch together in the work canteen and eventually, on one of my Sunday nights off, we went out on our first date. We smoked some dope and drank some beer and I stayed the night in his small bed set. I'd never made love to an adult male before and I really liked it. My boyfriend from school days was lovely but not driven sexually. He had addiction problems and I'd been supporting him financially before his parents gave him the plane ticket to London for his 21st birthday. He was a talented artist and they hoped it would inspire him to get started on his career. David, I soon discovered, had been married for ten years and had had several other relationships both before and after the marriage. He was separated from his wife but he failed to mention to me on that first crazy night we spent together that his ex was in an advanced stage of pregnancy. I was given that startling news several days later when he cornered me in the canteen and told me excitedly that his estranged wife had just given birth to a baby boy. I can't remember exactly how I felt, but I must have been confronted and confused by the revelation. Looking back at that time of my life, I acknowledge that it was absolute madness I was making significant decisions and choices at such an early age with little or no real-life experience. What was I doing sliding into a serious relationship with a still-married but separated man who'd just become a father? How did David manage to convince me to meet his wife and baby Tony, which I did? Tony was adorable and I struck up a sort of friendship with his wife – guilelessly offering to give her a break from mothering for a few hours every Sunday so that David could spend some time with his son. My parents were perplexed when we turned up for lunch the following Sunday with a baby in a basket on the platform shelf of David's hardtop NGB. Babies didn't have protective car seats or seat belts back then. I would cuddle Tony at the lunch table and feed him bottled breast milk that his mother had expressed for his weekly family outing. David had a very powerful and persuasive personality. He was intense and quite obviously determined to hang on to me and our new relationship. It's just as well I love babies.' We'd been living together for several months in David's little bedsit when my old boyfriend flew home from the UK to try and woo me back. It didn't work. I felt terrible about betraying him, as I had dearly loved him. But it had become a hopeless situation. My attempts to save enough money to join him were futile. Almost every week he phoned me at work, reverse charges, asking me to urgently send him money.' He hadn't even tried to find a job, and as fast as I was saving, it was all going overseas, undoubtedly to pay for his drugs as well as his rent. Very sadly, he died in Paris in his thirties of an accidental drug overdose. My parents were both journalists, and between them earned an excellent income. They'd both been staunch members of the Communist Party and at various times my father used this as an ideological excuse not to enter the property market. His political convictions were not the only reason we lived in a small rented flat for most of my childhood. A heavy drinker and gambler, Dad simply had no desire to spend his salary on a mortgage. I could barely believe that by the age of 22 I was in a committed relationship with an older, still-married man and that my name was next to his on the title deed of a house. This was how it all began. How could I have imagined that the man who had reminded me of a garden gnome would be my life partner for 43 wild and mostly wonderful years – How could I have known that from being a lowly PR junior I'd spend much of my career writing about gardening, leading people on botanical treks in the Himalayas and being a television presenter on a national gardening show?